0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, I gave you the opportunity to submit statements or questions around matters of mental health. And specifically, if you wanted to, you could ask me questions about my own mental health, my depression and anxiety, or just questions in general about mental health and theology and how these things intersect. I got a lot of submissions, of which I'm I'm very thankful. I thank God for the responses that you all gave. What exactly I'm going to do with all of those? Still, I honestly don't know. I'm still pondering those things, and it may be that we have um, a separate time during the week to get together and have sort of an open discussion time in which I can offer responses and other questions can be asked as well. Uh, but I'll let you know as soon as that is decided. Nevertheless, I wanted to revisit the topic of mental health today and specifically depression today and talk about it in terms of hope and the hope that we have in Jesus. Depression can occur for a lot of reasons. For instance, some of you might be familiar with the five states of grief. The five states of grief. Um, One of the states of grief when there is a loss is depression. When we experience a loss... Especially like a really big loss. When we experience a death, a family member, a friend, at one point or another, it's not uncommon for depression to be part of that. And that may not be like clinical depression, but depression, feeling down, feeling a lack of interest in activities you once enjoyed, feeling a hollowness, an emptiness, an ongoing sadness, it's a normal part of grief. Depression, though, can also happen outside of specific loss. Lots of different factors can contribute to or continue to cause depression to continue on. Lack of certain nutrients, for instance. One of you actually asked me um, what medications am I currently on. Vitamin D is one of them because I was vitamin D deficient, and that can contribute to depression, as well as uh, something called sertraline and buspirin. But nutrients... Um, A lack of certain nutrients, lack of exercise, lack of sunshine, lack of relationships, excessive work, not enough work, possibly a person's genetics or physiology could all affect it as well. Basically, depression can occur without a specific sense of someone being at fault for it, or at times we might do things that contribute to it. It's very complicated in many respects. There are also various amounts of severity when it comes to depression, from very light to moderate to severe depression. But again, it's generally characterized by a loss of enjoyment with activities and or an ongoing sadness, emptiness, or hopelessness for more than two weeks if you're looking at like a diagnosis from the DSM-5. And then there's, you have to have four other symptoms going along with that. ongoing sadness, emptiness, hopelessness, and or a loss of enjoyment with activities. For some people, again, hopelessness is an aspect of depression. And so while I want to talk about depression today, I'm going to broaden this out to hopelessness. So again, hopefully it's applicable to us and to the people that we know. For me personally, in the midst of more severe moments of depression, I did not necessarily stop being hopeful. I still anticipated, as a Christian person, the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of everything. But there was also a reality that my hope lacked any possibility outside of that one event that anything better would actually happen. In other words, there were times where happiness or wholeness or a sense of things are going to improve or could improve just wasn't possible for me. I still had that great event coming, but it's like anything in the days ahead before that happens, yeah, I don't think it's going to get any better. I had hope, but it was hope again without possibility in the immediate. Now, when interacting with someone who is depressed, or again, broadening this out today, when somebody is just experiencing a loss of hope, for instance, someone we love who is close to us, when we go to and act and speak into that situation, it's not uncommon to want to have them feel better, right? That's a compassionate thing to want. We see someone hurting, we want to cheer them up, lift them up in some way or another. We want them to experience hope. And joy. But this is really difficult when someone is trapped in depression or in hopelessness. In the midst of my own experiences, again, especially a more intense depression, if someone said to me, don't worry, it's going to get better, my thought would quickly often be, you don't know that. You don't know that. Those sort of words, things are just, it's going to get better. Like, look on the bright side of things. They can ring really hollow. And this can be hard and maybe even a bit scary for us to wrestle with because there is no guarantee that things are, in fact, going to get better in our circumstances. Things could stay the same. Things could get better. They could also continue to get worse. This is the horrifying reality that we live in. Things may not get better. And I think at times that we're worried, I know I do at times, that we're going to contribute to or keep someone stuck in a depressed or hopeless state if we can't say something like, it's going to get better. We can't tell them also, it's never going to get better, because we don't know, right? We don't know. It's also, again, not something that we can guarantee. We strive to validate their experience of what they're going through, that it's horrible. Because I'm not sure anyone here likes their experience or their feelings dismissed. But then in the midst of validating their experience, we work to be present with them in a way that is meaningful and compassionate. This too, again, I think is difficult. If we come across someone who is feeling down or empty or hopeless or experiencing depression, we want so badly for them to feel something different, which again is a good desire to have. We may go to them and we could tell them, let me cheer you up, let me get you out of the house, let's go out to eat. You're so sad, let's get out of here and go do something else that could be happier. In some situations, that might be helpful. I know for myself, though, if someone said, let me cheer you up, I could just easily spiral into worry that I'm going to disappoint them, because I don't feel like I'm going to cheer up. I could easily spiral into fear that I have to be happy. I've got to somehow make this situation better because they're trying so hard on my behalf. I've got to cheer up. That's what they want. But forcing yourself to cheer up, especially in a hopeless state or a depressed state, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. I think considering intention in this matter is important. I believe that there can be a very meaningful and important difference between let me cheer you up and take you out to eat versus I care about you. Let's go out to eat. Right? I care about you. Let's go out to eat. Or I care about you. Let's go for a walk. That could still feel off-putting or horrifying to somebody struggling with depression, or it could just feel disinteresting, because, again, anhedonia, a lack of joy in activities, is often part of depression as well. But I think, I think that people experience our intentions. If the intention is, you need to cheer up, then the body language, the tone, the conversation, the mood, the entire experience is often felt in those terms. If the intention is, I care about you. I know you're hurting, but I don't know what to do, but I care about you. And that's the main thing you want to get across, not cheer up. But again, I care. I believe when we, by the Spirit, center ourselves on that intention, it's more possible for that intention to be experienced through body language, through tone, through activities, and the like. It's not a guarantee, right? We can have the best of intentions and things still may not go well. We might even make mistakes, Mistakes, and thank God for forgiveness in that regards. But intention, I think, can be felt. Right? Maybe you've experienced this before, right? Intentions that are just off-putting and intentions that are just joy-giving in some respects, or life-giving, even if it's the same activity. Please know, however, that none of this cures depression We can be as loving and kind as we can be, and that person may still struggle. The goal is not to, again, cure them, even though we want them well. And again, that's a good thing to want. The goal is to love them, to show them compassion. Now, that could mean things like conversations about therapy, medication, or other ways that, again, have been shown to help with depression, but again, none of that's easy, and it's not always clear navigating the ins and outs of specific relationships. Each person is going to be different. But what Christ calls us to is compassion. He calls us to love for our fellow human beings, and that's foundational for us. It's foundational to our interactions with one another. Some people may also have the notion, as we're thinking about like you know, trying to cure depression... Some people may have the notion that, well, if that person just believed in Jesus, if they were just more involved in Christianity, if they would just come to church more regularly, their depression, I know it, it would go down, it would get better, or their other mental health struggles would go away, because Christianity offers real hope that can change depression. But this one's hard. Christianity doesn't cure depression. In the same way that Christianity doesn't cure heart disease. doesn't cure arthritis. It doesn't cure other aspects of life in that regards and disease. This doesn't mean that the hope that we have in Christianity doesn't matter. It does. But it matters in how we view the world and therefore how we engage one another with the hope that we have to bring about, again, compassion, care, And ongoing love. Peter, in his epistle that we heard today, is continually grounding the people in hope. Granted, he's writing to them in a situation in which they're experiencing violence and slander against them from outside of them. And he wants them to be grounded in the hope in the midst of that suffering. This is not the same thing as depression that we're talking about today, but the framework of hope, I think, still speaks into this context of hopelessness for us today. Peter, at the end of our reading, envisions Jesus at the right hand of God, the position of authority. The position in which God is giving him the power and the reign, and Jesus is executing that reign out into the world. And Peter envisions Jesus with all spirits, angels, and powers in submission to him. And the hope that Peter offers is that Jesus is actively ruling over heaven and earth. Actively ruling over the entire thing. There's a weird story in there, a gigantic rabbit hole about him being raised and going into prison in the days of Noah. We're not covering that today, but it fits with this idea of hope and about the reign of Jesus. Not only that, but the promises that he's going to return and bring that reign fully into the world. Bring the world to its end. Now the phrase, the end of the world, which doesn't show up in our reading today, has come to mean something in our current context that I don't think the biblical authors imagined at all. When we think of the end of the world, we think in terms of destruction, right? An end is the final farewell. End means that once it has reached a certain point, it ceases to be. And so people wonder if Jesus is going to show up and, again, annihilate the earth and wipe out the cosmos. Or, or maybe the sun's just going to eventually use up all of its fuel, stop burning, and will be hurtled into non-existence. And maybe that's how God will bring the world to its dark and formless end. End, right? But the thing is, is that's not what the scriptural authors meant when they used the word end. The word end in this sort of context has to do with... Something coming to its completion, its fullness. One way I like to talk about this is the image of someone building a house, right? Building a house. You lay the foundation. The building hasn't reached its end, right? You lay the foundation. You got to put floor joists in place. Walls are framed. The roof is put on. The house still isn't done. It's got to be watertight, and then there's electrical, there's plumbing, there's drywall, there's flooring, and eventually the last touch, the last aspect of the building project, reaches its end, right? Reaches its end. The house is complete. In the scriptures, you would say, the house has come to an end, to its end. Everything is as it's supposed to be. It's complete, and it can now be moved into and enjoyed into the future because the building's done. It's reached its end. This is how the scriptures speak about what Jesus is doing to the entire cosmos. Right? Paul in Romans 8 has a massive view of the redemption of Jesus. We look at the creation, we look at it, and we see pain. We see violence. We see a world that is shaking and falling apart. It is a world that when we encounter someone who is experiencing hopelessness, we dare not say, it's gonna get better, right? Because there's so much to point out that shouts at them the very opposite and shouts at us the opposite as well, the world is full of darkness and destruction. It's a frightening and a hopeless estate. And it seems like it is hurtling at light speed towards oblivion. It seems like the earth is on a crash course, falling headfirst into annihilation. But what Jesus invites us to trust is that The cosmos, the entire thing is hurtling at light speed towards resurrection. That somehow the creation itself is on the verge, the precipice, the very edge of the cliff, but when it finally tips the edge, what is awaiting is not destruction, but utter and total restoration. Paul talks this way again to the church in Rome when he says the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth and that we too are groaning. Groaning. Childbirth, right? Childbirth in some respects, again, I haven't gone through it. My wife has. She can speak to this in a much more um, real way than I probably can, even though I've been there for them. Childbirth seems like the opposite of life while it's happening, right? It's full of pain. It's full of violence. It's full of fear and sometimes even hopelessness that this isn't going to work in some way. And Paul wants us to imagine the world, the whole thing, as a woman in the midst of labor. Writhing in pain and agony, it's dark, it's frightening, there's all sorts of groaning, but somehow to see that what is about to happen is not annihilation, but new life. New life. The cosmos, the entire thing, is hurtling towards the end. The end, the completion, the restoration of absolutely everything. Everything. When all things find their fulfillment, not their destruction, but the culmination of what God created them to be in the first place and what he's redeeming them to be in Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, raised from the dead, this is what we trust the creation is being dragged into by him. Jesus says in John's Gospel account, when I am lifted up, I will drag all people to myself. Right? He's dragging creation to himself. The one who was raised from the dead is the source of life, the completion of it all. He already has the powers under his submission by his death and resurrection. All spirits and powers, even the evil ones. And this doesn't mean that Jesus is like, micromanaging everything so that everything is somehow sort of like fatalistic. It's that he has the last say. His will is going to win in the end. And the last enemy, Paul says, death will finally be destroyed on that day. This is our hope, right? This is what we are invited to dare to believe is going to be the end result of all things. The outcome of all things, that somehow, amidst the darkness, amidst the violence, amidst the emptiness, amidst the hopelessness, that somehow, in the midst of a hopeless world, the world is going to suddenly and shockingly come into the hope that Jesus is directing it towards. Because He's at the Father's right hand and He is Lord over heaven and earth. Again, this hope is amazing, it's beautiful. But it doesn't cure depression. It doesn't cure hopelessness. It doesn't fix this feeling that there's no possibility of getting things better in the immediate sense. This hope doesn't cure the immediacy of grief, of loss that we experience today. The world is still full of darkness, and in the immediate sense, things might not get better. They could. It could get worse. They might stay the same. We hope they get better. We long for it. We pray that it does. We call on the Lord of heaven and earth to make changes today in our lives and in people's lives. And we work in love. And we work in compassion for the sake of others so that it might actually have the opportunity of getting better as we are ambassadors of the very reign of God in this world we do so right we carry out love and compassion because we dare to trust against all the odds that all things are rushing toward their great and glorious end when jesus will be all and in all and when all things that he has made find their fulfillment in him into eternity we live in that hope it's beautiful and it shapes us to foster relationships by welcoming one another continually into this reign of God, into this life of love and compassion, into this one great hope that can change the present, even as we long for the day when all is made new. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.